children, all the children of the world. Red, brown, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in His sight. Jesus died for all the children of the world. Well, take your Bibles this morning, open them to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, please. This morning as we look at the temptation of Jesus. And after, at Christmas time, I think we're often in the Gospel of Luke. That's where the most well-known part of the Gospel story is with the birth of Jesus and the coming of the shepherds. And this year, we are going to spend from now really through Easter time, other than next Sunday. Next Sunday is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, so we will focus on that. But we're going to look at the temptation of Jesus today, and then after Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, we're going to look at the ministry of Jesus for several weeks, and then we will spend the several weeks before Easter looking at the suffering of Jesus and his last week in Jerusalem. But today we find ourselves here in this passage of the temptation of Jesus, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. So would you please stand in honor of God's word as it is read? And before I read, would you pray with me the prayer on the screen? Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Amen. Luke chapter 4. Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Amen. You may be seated. Christians must never take shortcuts to avoid the cross. Now, if you're like me, oftentimes you look for shortcuts. Now, my wife will tell you I have the spiritual gift of turning a shortcut into a long cut because um, usually it lands up taking longer than I had the original way would have taken. But we look for shortcuts. When we lived in Ohio, and we would travel up to this area uh, for holidays, because my brother and sister live up here, and my wife's brother lives up here. Um, when we would travel up here, we were always looking for a shortcut around Lima, Ohio. And so there were different ways to take, until somebody said, um, whose daughter had gone to Bethel, they said, take Blue Lick Road. So that's the fastest way to get around it. So we started taking Blue Lick Road. And we take shortcuts even here around town. I don't know if you have shortcuts. We have one. When we are out uh, shopping, you know, out on Grape and Main Street, and we're close to Target, Menards, Best Buy, that area of town, well, to get home, 
We live south of there and west of there. So the shortcut is this. We go down University Park Drive. Rather than turning left on the Grape Road, which is the direction of our home, when we get to the Wendy's there in the corner, we turn right. We go up 1,000 feet. We turn left into the, uh, the JCPenney parking lot. We cut through the parking lot to the first exit on the backside onto US 23, turn left onto 23, and then zoom down 23 to get to our house, which is faster than all the traffic on Grape Road. It's our shortcut. I don't know if it's a good or legal shortcut, but it's our shortcut. When I was a student at Bethel, we had the Bethel turnaround, which was our shortcut when, when you were at what used to be Kmart down in where I think uh, what Big Lots is going in there now, where Kmart was, and, uh, or a town and country, and you'd be coming back down McKinley to make a left onto Logan Street, and you get caught with that red arrow, and you have to sit through the entire light and wait for the red arrow. So if the light's green going straight, you go on McKinley, go through the light on McKinley, turn left into what used to be Pizza Hut there on the corner, through their parking lot, back out, turn right onto Logan Street, and back into Bethel College. And so it was the Bethel turnaround. People did it all day long, cutting through that Pizza Hut parking lot uh, so they could avoid the, the red arrow. People love shortcuts, but today God wants us to look at the temptation of Jesus, a temptation that comes from the devil to take a shortcut that avoids the cross. And to realize that we, followers of Jesus Christ, can never take a shortcut that avoids the cross of Jesus Christ. To do that this morning, I want to walk you through explaining this passage. I've taken a sentence, a long sentence, broken it in, that explains the passage and broken it into four parts. The first part of the sentence is this. Jesus is the Son of God. Some of the commentaries refer to this section here, starting back in chapter 3, after the birth narrative of Jesus, starting back in chapter 3, where John the Baptist prepares the way, then there's the genealogy, and then we get to this passage of the temptation, that these three stories together are the manifestation of the Son of God. This is where we see that Jesus is indeed not just a prophet, not just a teacher, he is the Son of God. And what's interesting is how Luke has put his gospel together because Luke's most popular title for Jesus is calling him the Son of Man, which we're not going to explain the background of that title for Jesus today, but it's interesting that in this section, he calls him the Son of God. Luke only calls Jesus the Son of God nine times in his gospel. He calls him the Son of Man 25 times, I think it is, in the gospel of Luke. But, so he doesn't use this title often. Four of the nine are in this area that scholars call the manifestation of the Son of God. The title is used here in chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 because this is after his birth, but it is before his public ministry. One of the other ones, references to the Son of God, is in the birth announcement of Jesus that Gabriel makes to Mary. But he is called the Son of God here. So if you flip back to Luke chapter 3, verse 22, you'll notice the emphasis here is that it says, starting in verse, chapter 3, verse 22, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. A voice came from heaven, you are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. 
And what you discover is that at his baptism, Jesus is identified as the Son of God. The Spirit descends upon him, and the voice of the Father comes and identifies that Jesus is indeed his one eternal Son. He is the Son of God. Then you turn to the next passage, the genealogy, which is kind of interesting because Matthew puts the genealogy a little bit earlier in his gospel, and he would have thought that when Jesus was born, Luke would have put the genealogy there, but he puts it here on purpose because after the father declares Jesus to be his son in whom he is well pleased, Luke now wants to show his genealogy, a genealogy that he takes back farther than the gospel of Matthew does. He takes it all the way back to the person of Adam. And one of the reasons he does that is because if you get to the end of the genealogy, you discover there in the last verse, verse 38 says, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Not that Adam is the son of God in the same way Jesus is, but that Adam was created by a direct creation of God. We are an indirect creation of God in the sense that that we have parents, Adam did not. And so he's called the son of God. But the point of that, part of the point of that, is that Luke wants us to understand that Jesus' genealogy confirms him as the son of God. And so we identify him as the son of God, we confirm him as the son of God, and then we get to the temptation in which he has tested and proven to be the son of God. All before his ministry begins. And so in this passage, to understand this passage, what you have to understand is this. Jesus is the Son of God. Now, you might be reading through the temptation and thinking that, well, in this temptation, that's what the devil is tempting and wondering about. Because two of the temptations, the devil comes to him and says, if you are the Son of God. You see that in verse 3. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And sometimes we think, well, the devil is calling into question Jesus' sonship. I don't interpret the passage that way. I think the word if there can actually be translated just as well to say since you are the son of God. Because you are the son of God. You can grab onto your miraculous powers and get yourself out of this hungry mess you find yourself in. And so the temptation comes because he is the son of God. And the temptation is to live as the son of God and ignoring the humanity. So you have to pause for a second. When you realize in this passage to understand it, that Jesus is the son of God, you have to answer a question. Who do you believe Jesus is? Who do you believe that Jesus Christ is? A teacher? A prophet? A figment of history? Or do you believe, as Luke wants us to understand, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God the Father? Now, it is this passage highlight that Jesus is the Son of God. It also goes on to say to highlight this. He's the son of God who chooses the way of God. He is the son of God who chooses the way of God. There's three temptations in this passage. The first temptation is this, to turn stones into bread. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days in the desert or the wilderness, depending on the translation. And when you hear, if your translation says wilderness, realize that wilderness in the Middle East is a lot like a desert. <laughs> it's not a jungle that we might happen to think of. 
And so Jesus has been fasting. He's hungry. The devil comes to him and says, so you're hungry. Why don't you turn these stones into bread since you are the son of God? And the second temptation, he offers him all the kingdoms of the world. And says, you know what? You can have all the kingdoms of the world. All you have to do is bow down and worship to me, and I will give them to you. And then in the third temptation, he says, well, why don't you just throw yourself down from this high point? Probably the temple, the corner of the temple that overlooks the Kidron Valley, which is over 150 feet high in the ancient world. That's a staggering height. I know it doesn't compare to the to like the Empire State Building or the tall buildings that we have today or the skyscrapers in Chicago, but it would be a staggering height in the ancient world. It says, why don't you just jump off because God said that he will send his angels to, to protect you. And so we have these three temptations. And it's interesting, there is no lack of commentaries trying to explain what the three different temptations are. But I think Jesus, at the root of it, if we were to take all three, not necessarily getting into the, the detail of each one, but if you were to take all three, I think what Jesus is being tempted to do by Satan is this. Is Satan comes along and says, Jesus, wouldn't you rather do this your way rather than the Father's way? There, there's a technical term for this. I call this the kenosis temptation. Now, I know that's not a familiar word to you. It's a Greek word, kenosis. And so... This word shows up in the book of Philippians where Paul says of Jesus that we should have the attitude Jesus had because he was in very nature God but did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing. That phrase there, Jesus made himself nothing. The nothing is the kenosis. Jesus was willing to become nothing in other words, taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human appearance. And so Jesus took on flesh and blood. He gave up all the powers of heaven and laid them aside that he might take on all of human flesh. He's still 100% the son of God, but he lays aside his access to those powers, except apart from the enabling of the Holy Spirit and the will of the Father, to become also 100% human that he might be our savior. It is the self-emptying. If you were to go on Wikipedia, you can type in kenosis into Wikipedia. It says it is Christian, in Christian theology, kenosis is the self-emptying of Jesus' own will and becoming entirely receptive to the Father's divine will. And I think that's at the heart of what Satan is tempting Jesus to do. He's looking at it saying, you know, the Father has a plan for you. The Father has a plan of salvation that you're going to minister, but ultimately it's going to lead to you saving the world, saving the world through a cross. Are you sure you really want to be 100% human? You know, you ever notice when kids run around, no kid ever pretends to be Mr. Human. They run around pretending to be Superman or Batman. They'd run around pretending to be Spider-Man. Or when I was a kid, the Marvel comics were big. They've come back again since then. And my friends all wanted to be Wolverine and have spikes coming out of their fists so they could slay people as we ran around the backyard. And you always want to pretend to be that. And people always want to be super, but Jesus has gone the opposite direction. He's emptied himself. And he's become human. And I think the devil comes along and says, do you really want to do the human thing? 
Are you sure you don't want to take care of hunger and use some of this miracle power for yourself, for your own gain? Are you sure you don't just want to save the world? All you got to do is bow down and worship me, and you can avoid the whole cross thing later on. I'll just give it to you. Just bow down and worship me. Are you so sure that if you go through with all this that God will really save you? Maybe you should test him in this and jump off a high spot and just see if he sends angels to save you. Are you sure you really want to go the Father's route of becoming human that you can be the Savior? And Jesus has to determine in this temptation. Notice it's before his public ministry begins. Luke has this own special section, the manifestation of the Son of God. He's identified as the Son of God. He is shown to be the Son of God through his genealogy, and now it's being tested before he starts his ministry, are you really going to live according to the Father's will? You can choose right now, Jesus, the Father's way or your own way. And you can pause here on this little phrase, who chooses the way of God. Do you realize that's a choice every Christian has to make? We have to choose whether we will live God's way or whether we will live our own way. They used to say years ago, they would do altar calls years ago, and they would call people down to the front, and they would say, maybe you've accepted Jesus as your Savior. Have you accepted Jesus as your Lord? Have you laid your all on the altar? Maybe you've heard that phrase from years ago. And the idea of saying, have you surrendered what you want in life, and are you willing to Empty yourself of that, that you might be filled with a desire that you want only what God wants in your life, no matter what that costs. And you realize that's not a question just for Jesus. It becomes a question for us all in life. Do we really just want what God wants? So Jesus is the Son of God who chooses the way of God as revealed in the Word of God. You'll notice his response. If you've heard sermons on this passage before, you've probably heard this highlighted, that when Jesus is tempted, he quotes Scripture. So it says in verse 4, it says, Jesus answered, it is written. And he's quoting from the Old Testament. In verse 8, when he's tempted, Jesus answered, it is written. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. We get to verse 12 Jesus said, answered, it says, and I think the reason he does that is because G, the Satan has just come at him and said, well, it's written, and Satan uses scripture out of context in the wrong way, and so Jesus comes back and says, it says, and he corrects the devil. But you'll notice this, Jesus is the son of God who chooses the way of God as revealed in the word of God. The lesson for us here is that the word of God carries the authority of God. The word of God carries the authority of God. Uh, many of you know this last year, Billy Graham went home to be with the Lord, maybe the most famous evangelist, maybe of all of history, um, you know, worldwide. Uh, Billy Graham was well known, and he was known as a preacher that when, when he would get preaching, he had a statement that he would use, and I, to be honest, I'm, 
I'm young enough that I did not grow up seeing many Billy Graham crusades or anything or remembering much about them other than they would sometimes rebroadcast his preaching on television. So when I was a kid, we would stop at my grandma's house on the way to church because she didn't have a car and we would pick her up. And every Sunday morning, the only memory I have is that we would go into the house waiting for her, the TV would be on, and in my memory, I don't know if this is true or not, but in my memory, it's Billy Graham on TV every Sunday morning at my grandma Sweeney's house. On a big old box, 25-inch TV with the little dials you used to have to spin, and they'd rotate off the channel, and you'd have to touch it back to get it back in, and you'd wait, and 10 minutes later, you'd go back up and adjust it. But it was always Billy Graham. He had a statement, though, he would say. He would say, the Bible says. And when he would preach, he would use that phrase over and over. The Bible says in his evangelistic preaching, because there used to be a day and a time when people understood that if the Bible said it, it was true, because they knew the Bible, the Word of God, came with the authority of God. Now, that's not as true today. People don't necessarily think any more of the Bible than they think of any other religious writing. But we discover that little phrase, scholars tell us, when Jesus says, it is written, that phrase in Jewish culture, they say, means this is the authoritative statement determining how to behave. The Word of God carries the authority of God. Several years ago, I guess about 10 years ago, I was with a, a group of pastors up at a camp in um, Michigan. And uh, the missionary church had gathered together a whole group of pastors uh, for a training weekend. And in one of the general sessions where they had us together, we were talking. And one of the pastors of one of uh, our, our really large churches, not Napanee, um, everybody thinks of Napanee around here, not Napanee, but of, of one of the large churches stood up. And he made a statement that I, I was almost dumbfounded at. He, he asked, he said, he said, pastors, he goes, how many of you are preaching on marriage? How many of you are preaching on family? And uh, he, he'd say, show your hands, different things. And then he made this statement, and he grabbed the book and picked up the book, The Five Love Languages. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but uh, it's sold over a million copies now by Gary Chapman. It's a good book. I have it on my bookshelf. I've used illustrations out of it. He held up that, that book, and he said this. He said, pastors, how many of you have preached this book yet? You need to preach this book to your congregation. He said, why haven't you preached it? And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, there is a reason I haven't preached the five love languages is because only this book comes with the authority of God. Only the word of God has the authority of God. And that doesn't mean their other books aren't good, but they're not God's word. And so we, we as God's people stand on the authority of the word of God. Now, that's not to say Christian books are bad, and I, I probably enjoy them as much as anyone. But it is to say that they are not a replacement for the Word of God. And so, that comes, I think, as a challenge to us. Because we have to realize, if the Word of God comes with the authority of God, then we have to ask, have we let Christian literature replace God's Word in our life? You might say, well, Pastor, what do you mean by that? I, so I'm going to pick on, on a devotional. I, I'm happy with it. In fact, I like the app better than I like the devotional. I have the app on my phone for Our Daily Bread. And, um, and I like Our Daily Bread. I have great respect for the people who run that organization and the ministries they do. And I've used multiple different, they have, they have wonderful teaching tools and all through their organization as well. But you ever notice in Our Daily Bread, there's a little Bible verse at the top. And then there's the little story that goes along with it, and then the thought at the end of the day. And 
I don't know about you, but I find that if I have a devotional like that, this is my habit. I read the little verse at the top. I read uh, the story that goes along with it, and that's my devotional time. You know, you, you could say a prayer, and then you're done. And all of a sudden, what you can find is that after a month of using a devotional, the one book you've never really opened or cracked is the, the Bible. And I'm all for the devotionals. They just can't replace the Word of God in our life. Because those are the words of men. But this is the word of God. And so use devotionals. They're great things to use. But never let Christian literature replace God's word in your life. They have a place to come alongside and to help us understand God's word. I read commentaries every week as I study for passages. And I read commentaries and study through it. But you have to remember, all of that is the words of men. Only one book is the word of God that has the authority of God. And Jesus says, it is written. Now, of course, that comes with a warning for us because Satan, we discover, twists scripture and uses it in a wrong way. So it's the word of God really interpreted properly that has the authority of God. So Jesus is the son of God who chooses the way of God in this passage as revealed in the word of God in contrast to the Old Testament people of God. You may remember as you read through this passage that there's a lot of similarities between this passage and a certain group of people in the Old Testament. You may remember that there was another group of people who found themselves in the wilderness or the desert for a length of time. You may remember that the length of time that they found themselves in the wilderness and the desert happened to be the number 40. Jesus was 40 days, they were 40 years. You may remember that just like Jesus was hungry, they found themselves, after leaving Egypt, being rather hungry and complaining about maybe going back to Egypt where the food was better and they would be better cared for. You may remember that both were talked about as times of testing. Both were provided bread. Both crossed water. Jesus crossed the Jordan to go into the wilderness. This other group crossed the Red Sea. And that is the people of Israel. And it's interesting in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my, Israel is called my son. Out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further from me they went. Israel was called, but Israel was unfaithful in the desert. In fact, you discover they were, Israel was tested with hunger to depend on God, but they complained and failed. Israel was commanded to worship God alone, but they turned to idolatry off. And Israel doubted God's power and put him to the test at Massa. And everywhere where Israel failed, do you see what Jesus does? He obeys. Israel was the unfaithful son of God, the people of God. Jesus comes as the eternal son of God to be the perfectly obedient son of God that he might be the lamb of God who lays down his life unblemished as a sacrifice for our sins. And where Israel failed in the desert, Jesus is now coming to succeed. And you want to know what the great news about that is? Is that wherever we have failed God, Jesus has succeeded. He is the Savior who has succeeded. Not that he has experienced every same thing that we experience or had the exact same temptations, but to know this, where we have failed God ultimately, Jesus has obeyed God perfectly. And so he is qualified to be our Savior. 
And I find great comfort in knowing that Jesus has succeeded everywhere I have failed. So Jesus is the Son of God who chooses the way of God as revealed in the Word of God in contrast to the Old Testament people of God. And I say, all right, Pastor, that's a lot of information. I've been jotting notes down and taking stuff. There's a lot there. What does that have to do with us? I believe Jesus was tempted to take a shortcut from the cross in the wilderness, to find an easier way other than the suffering and his death there. And we have to discover this. Christians must never take shortcuts that avoid the cross. We can never take shortcuts that avoid the cross. Jesus looked at his followers and said, take up your cross and follow me. And you might think, well, what does that mean? Well, it means when we are tempted, sometimes we are tempted to go the wrong way because it's the easy way. Are you ever tempted to go the wrong way because it's the easy way? There's a pastor, he's probably retired now, a pastor years ago up in Holland, Michigan, of a large, well-respected church up there. He and his wife were devastated the night when their 16-year-old daughter came home and broke the news to them that she was pregnant. And all of a sudden, the news breaks, and they wonder, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What, you know, how do we solve this situation that we find ourselves in? And there's all different thoughts running through their head. They're looking at their daughter and saying, you're 16 years old. You said you're hardly responsible enough to drive the car, let alone to parent a child. And they looked at themselves, and he looks at himself and says, I'm the pastor of, a, of one of the largest churches in Holland, Michigan, one of the best-known pastors in this city. And he said, what will people think of me and my ministry? What are we going to do? And in that moment, there's a little answer, a whisper that comes along and says, and the moment of temptation said, if you would abort this child, nobody will have to know. And he sat there, he said, you know what, I've preached pro-life, I've talked about the sanctity of life, how God starts life from the moment of conception to the point of natural death. He said, I've, I've stood in the pulpit and I've proclaimed that, he said, but in that moment, when you're face to face with it, and I thought, this is going to wreck my daughter's life, this is going to wreck our lives, this is going to wreck our ministry, this is going to wreck our standing in society, this is going to wreck things, the devil whispers in a moment, you know, there's an easier way, it doesn't have to cost you anything, nobody has to know, why don't you just make this decision, because the other two decisions, those, those are costly decisions, the one decision is to let their daughter, their daughter would have the child and care for that child and rear that child. But she's only 16 years old and their dreams of her going off to college and to studying and, and the boyfriend's probably going to leave town and leave them and she, they just look at her life and they think she isn't ever going to have the princess life that we've dreamed for her. They think of the other option. The other option is adoption. I think, well, maybe, maybe we could choose adoption. And said. That way the baby would be cared for, and yet our daughter, who's only 16 and isn't ready to care for the child, the responsibility wouldn't fall on her shoulders. And they looked at each other, and, and as a husband and wife, they said, I don't know if we can handle having a grandchild running around knowing that our blood's flowing through that child's veins, and we don't know who he is. So they started praying. And when they looked at their daughter and the situation and her ability to care for a child and their family, they, they believed God led them finally to adopt. 
And so there's a little kid in the world who was adopted by a wonderful Christian family, and that family is grateful for those parents who are willing to adopt and to raise that child in a Christian home. But there is a whisper. You know, there's an easier way. And that is what the devil often does. He whispers in our ear, there is an easier way. Just do this. Don't worry about that. Nobody will ever know. Jesus, you don't need to go to the cross. There's an easier way to save the world. Just bow down and worship me. There's an easier way. We're tempted to go the wrong way because it's the easy way. Or you can flip it around. We're tempted to avoid the right way because it's the costly way. I don't know if you've ever seen the, uh, the classic movie, Chariots of Fire, the story of Eric Little. And most people don't know the entire story. You should uh, learn his entire story because he lands up going to China as a missionary and uh, losing his life in China. And uh, it's fascinating to hear the rest of what happens in his life. But if you've seen the classic movie, you know that, that he had a conviction in his heart that, that Sunday was the Sabbath day, that it was to be a day of rest and a day of worship. And so he had a conviction in his heart that he should not participate in athletics on Sunday. And at the beginning of the movie, you see him um, gathered in a countryside in England. This happens back in the 1920s. And uh, a group of kids come up to him and say, Mr. Little, Mr. Little, can we go? Will you race us? We want to race you. And he looks at the kids, and it's Sunday, and he has this conviction in his heart. I don't, I don't do sports on Sunday. And he looks at them, and he says, no. He said, it's Sunday. We don't, we don't run on the Lord's Day. And they're like, oh, really? And he looks at him, and he goes, but tomorrow morning, he said, I'm catching a train out of here, 6 a.m. He said, you beat me. He said, you be, on the, you be here before the train gets here. And he said, I'll race all of you. As he walked away, somebody said, you don't have time to get up early. And, and to meet them before you catch the train to go out of town. He said, well, I don't want them to think that God is a prude. He said, God loves races. I just want Sunday to be for worship. He said, so we're going to meet him. And so those kids know that Christians can have fun. The story goes on. He lands up being England's, Great Britain's top runner. And so he's on his way to the 1924 Paris Olympics, where he is going to run in the 100-meter dash. He is picked to win the gold medal. He gets to... Paris, he looks through all the paperwork, sees the schedule for the trials and the time tryouts and everything, and he realizes that some of, the, some of the running heats take place on Sunday. And he has a conviction in his soul that for him, it's sin to run on Sundays. And so against all advice, he says, I'm dropping out of the 100-meter dash of which I'm the favorite. If you know the story, he lands up running in the 400-meter dash that has no qualifying heats on a Sunday, lands up winning the gold medal there. But sometimes, to go God's way, to do God's will, costs you. And he didn't know if that would cost him what was considered to be his best race. I remember one time years ago, Bethel College, I don't know if they still do, but they used to have spiritual emphasis week. They'd have one in the fall and then one in the second semester in the in the winter time. And during spiritual emphasis week one year, I remember the, the speaker speaking, and as a result of it, I felt convicted that I needed to go apologize to someone for something I'd done. And, and they were back home in Michigan where I'd grown up and lived. I realized I would need to call them. And I remember thinking, God, I don't want to call them because if I call them, number one, they don't know that I wronged them. <laughs> number two... They will think less of me if I confess this to them. And I just remember the conviction of the Holy Spirit. John, I want you 
to admit what you have done and to ask for forgiveness. And I think, but God, I don't want to do that. That will cost me my comfort and it will cost me part of my reputation. And God wasn't too worried about my comfort or my reputation. And the temptation is just say, no, nobody knows. It won't matter. But we can never choose a shortcut that avoids our cross. You can never choose a shortcut that avoids a cross. In fact, if you doubt that in this passage, then notice one final thing in this wonderful passage. That at this, the last temptation, and you'll notice if you read Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, temptation number two and three are switched in the Gospel of Matthew. But in Luke, it says in the last temptation, we'll start with verse 9, the devil led him up to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. But what I want you to know is back in verse 9, the devil led him to... Where? Jerusalem. And scholars will tell you, they think historically Matthew probably has the right chronological order. And some people are tempted to think, well, see, the Bible, it's not true. It doesn't make sense. Matthew and Luke, they disagree. It's true they have a different order, but there's a reason inspired by the Holy Spirit because Luke understands something. Starting in chapter 9, he'll say Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem on his way to Jerusalem on going to Jerusalem because Luke wants to emphasize there's something that happens in Jerusalem. Jesus dies at Jerusalem. And where does the devil do his last temptation? Did Jesus has said, no, I'm going the Father's way. No, I'm going the Father's way. So the third time, the devil says, well, let's go to Jerusalem. And let's see if God really will protect you in Jerusalem because you know that down the road, it's in Jerusalem that you will face the cross. It's in Jerusalem you will have a crown of thorns. In Jerusalem, you will be whipped and scourged. In Jerusalem, and he takes them to Jerusalem and says, do you really trust the Father to bring you through this? Maybe you should test him first in Jerusalem. Jesus refuses any shortcut that avoids the cross. We, his followers, must avoid any shortcuts in life that avoid the will of God that cost our cross in following him. Would you bow your heads with me? I just want to pray for you today. And some of you might be facing temptation in life. You have decisions to make. I don't know what they are. But you are tempted to take the easy way, but it's not the right way. Or you really want to avoid making the right decision because you know what it will cost you. And your soul right now feels like it's in the middle of the wilderness. And you know what? That is okay. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. And the Spirit can see you through to victory. But I want to pray for you. So this morning, if you're in the middle of temptation to take the easy route or to avoid the costliness of the cross, would you just 
with heads bowed, eyes closed, you just raise your hand and say, Pastor, pray for me today. I'm tempted, and I'm struggling, because I don't want to pay the price of following Jesus. And I know what I need to do. Will you raise your hands? See a couple hands here and there, over there. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who, Lord, they are facing temptation today. And the devil may whisper in their ear, just take the easy way. But Holy Spirit, you led Jesus into the wilderness. And by your power, he was victorious in the wilderness. And I pray today, Holy Spirit, that by your power, my brothers and sisters in Christ will choose not the shortcuts of life, they will choose the way of the cross. Because the way of the cross is ultimately the way of victory, and the way of the cross is ultimately the way of eternal life. So help them this day. Strengthen them this day. Nourish their faith and encourage and embolden them to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus, we praise you. For you are the perfect, obedient, faithful Son of God. And I praise you that, Lord, everywhere I have failed, you are perfect. You are perfect to be our Savior. And we worship you this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen.